Well, folks, I think we'll go ahead and begin. First of all, I want to thank uh, my dear brother, Sashan Siv, for filling in for me last week. I'm sure he did a great job. I think he was telling you kind of his life story. It's kind of an amazing thing um, that we would have a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. as a part of our congregation, but somebody who had been a Buddhist monk. And uh, I had the privilege of baptizing Sashan, gosh, back in... 2015 or 16, I guess it was. And he has become a strong believer. And, uh, you know, he got his business card made up, and it says, Sashan Siv, Christ's ambassador to the world. And, and he really, he's all over the world doing great things with a lot of different organizations. So I thank him. He's not here today because he's off. He's, I think he's going to speak at the Bush Library tomorrow. They're dedicating some thing in memory of his wife and so he's going to be the speaker there so he can't be with us today but thank you Sashan, if you listen to this this tape and uh let me thank you for your prayers uh me and the law of gravity are not getting along well and i've talked you know i i've seen that you've seen those pictures of the guys on the moon you know they're just sailing along about that's what i i need to live on the moon i think um i i've broken 11 bones in my life had eight orthopedic surgeries. That's before all this recent stuff, because I was a wild man playing football and baseball high school through college. And I threw my body around with reckless abandon and I'm paying for it now. But you know, back in those days, I could take a hit and pop up. And, and I'm gonna to confess to you, when I was a young pastor here at First Press, we had a lot of people in the hospital or they'd be home and I'd find out they had fallen, 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 fallen. And as a, you know, 31 year old pastor, I used to think, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they be more careful? I'm sick of having to make drive all the way out to the medical center to visit somebody because they're just careless. No more do I believe. <laughs> and you know, because when we fall now, I'm 72. We don't bounce up like we used to. So anyway, I got a hip pointer, which I never had in football. That's a career or a career suspending injury for a lot of players, but I never had one. Now I do. Hanging up a dad blame bird feeder. So anyway, it's not even exciting. Um, before we get into uh, the Apostles' Creed this morning, I just want to make a comment about creeds in general. You know, we have four of them now in ECO. Uh, down from 11 in the PCUSA. Nothing wrong with the 11 creeds. I affirm all, and they're all biblically orthodox and uh, generally reformed. But I voted against reunion with the northern denomination. One reason was I don't think having 11 creeds is a good idea. Um, if you have 11, you end up having none, because uh, which one is kind of authoritative and guides us and you can always find something in one creed and go, huh? See, we should be doing this, and somebody else goes, well, that's minor. We're not, no. So um, I argued as one of the founders of ECO that we get it down to one. Um, we went with 11 originally because the PCUSA was criticizing the Evangelical Presbyterian Church for only having one. They're too narrow. So we said, we got to look like the PCUSA to get out of here. So we got 11, but then we got it down to four now. We've got Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Westminster Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Those are all just great creeds. Um, 
But one thing about creeds, some people say, well, you know, they're ancient. They're, you know, we need to have up-to-date stuff. And every once in a while, denominations do a, a, a modern creed. And there's really nothing necessarily wrong with that. But G.K. Chesterton, the great English uh, theologian and novelist, uh, has a phrase that I've always loved and used to quote it on the floor of Presbytery meetings in our old denomination. He, he would talk often about the democracy of the dead. You know, we can always come up, every generation comes up with newfangled, what they think, you know, is the latest hot stuff that the church needs to be involved in. And uh, Chesterton said, before you get into that, uh, we're not the only ones that ought to be voting on this. Uh, and I'm going to get into this more when we talk in a few minutes about the communion of saints. We're, we're not just isolated Christians at a certain time and space and history, um, but there's a communion of saints. And those that have come before, Chesterton said, ought to get a vote. And if you look at the first 2,000 or 1,900 years of the church, uh, a lot of things that are, I'm not trying to kick a dead horse here, but our former denomination, majors in now, no one's ever majored in in 1900 years. And they have discarded that whole idea of the democracy of the dead. Um, that's all got to be brand new. We're smarter than any generation, and we've got it all figured out new. So creeds help us stay anchored to the historic church. And, you know, I'm not a fan. I'll just tell you, I'm not a fan of contemporary worship. I started it at my church in Baltimore and in Dallas. Why? Because I'm missiologically wired, and there were people in that both congregations that just Bach and Brahms didn't do it for them, and traditional worship didn't. So I tried to make a, a place for them, but the services were very reformed. They weren't going to just be happy clappy. Um, but somebody asked me about, you know, why don't you think contemporary worship's the best? I said, tell me who wants to have a contemporary funeral or contemporary wedding. We tried a contemporary Christmas Eve service in Baltimore. At the end, everybody, even the hardliners went, um, you know, there's something about the liturgy of the church, as it is right now, that's carried the church, carried the weight of the church through wars and famines and depressions. and um, That ought to count for something. And we're already seeing in the contemporary church world a movement back toward traditional worship, hymns, uh, I'm not trying to name drop, drop, but Keith Getty is a good friend of mine in Christ Alone. He used to, we had him come twice to Dallas and do some concerts. And I said, Keith, why did you start writing all these new, they're contemporary because they're new hymns. And he said, because I hate contemporary music. And these are, his hymns are deep theologically and, and, and really biblically orthodox. So anyway, I'm not trying to tear down contemporary worship, but uh, and my funeral is not to be contemporary. Okay. Democracy of the dead. That kind of goes, goes along with, it. remember this rule of St. Vincent I told you about? Fifth century, St. Vincent said, I'm paraphrasing, the way to stay on track with what's major and what's the majors is cling to what's been believed by all Christians at all times and all places. And that's hyperbole. There's never a total 100%. But most Christians in most places, most times, if you stay with that, you'll probably stay on the right track. That's not to say that there 
generations past might not have missed something in scripture or a new take on a way the church needs to appropriate. So we need to be have a teachable spirit uh, of what's new, but always put it up against. What what of those who've come before us, their, their wisdom might be worth listening to. So, saying that, let's pray. But before I pray, is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit? What do you think? Is it okay to pray to Jesus? And to the Father, we, we think, no problem with the Father. Some people wonder, should we pray to the Holy Spirit? Yes, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing us here today. We pray that you would be high and lifted up as we talk about you. And you would say, but I hope it all points us to Jesus. And Lord, guide me. May I not lead anybody astray, but may what we talk about here and uh, may it build us all up in Christ and equip us to more faithfully serve you in the week ahead. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a reminder, the, Holy, or the Apostles' Creed wants you and me to know primarily about who the person of God is. That God is a triune being, a community, a tri personal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Apostles' Creed breaks down into three main clauses. And we've looked at the first one about the Father. We've looked at the second one about Jesus. And now today we're going to get into the third and last clause of the Creed, which is about the Holy Spirit. Or is it? You know, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, we start with the Father, but what does it tell us about the Father? Not very much. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator or maker of heaven and earth. That's it. Okay, we get this idea, okay, God's our, he's almighty, sovereign, and he's the creator. And most of us go, well, yeah, we knew that. That's what it should say. Then we get to Jesus, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. We get to the Holy Spirit. It tells us absolutely nothing. But I believe in the Holy Ghost. And then the Holy Catholic Church. Wait a minute. I got some questions about who the Holy Spirit. The Creed doesn't say anything about who the Holy Spirit is. But it really does. I'll show you in just a minute. But I think the structure of the Creed is a reminder to us that as Trinitarian Christians, the emphasis must always be, and the centrality of our faith must always be, on the person and work of Christ. Not that the Father isn't important, of course he is. Uh, but those are two major things. He's sovereign and he's creator. But with the, cre or the uh, paragraph about Jesus, it gets into the person and work of Christ. And without that, our faith is just nothing. That, you know, he, he was fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, uh, and then the passion, he suffered and died, crucified, dead, buried. Remember we talked about he was really dead. In fact, you can use the phrase he descended into hell as a fourth emphasis that he was dead as a doornail. And that's what makes the resurrection. You know, C.S. Lewis would say it was the second greatest miracle. He says the incarnation was the greatest miracle that God, the infinite God, could enter time and space 
and become a human being without becoming unlike himself as God. But the second greatest miracle is that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and then, of course, he ascended, and he's coming back, as we talked about two weeks ago. So now we get to the Holy Spirit, or as the Creed says, the Holy Ghost. Chuck's not here today. Chuck Beatty is always on me. He's like, Ron, quit calling him the Holy Ghost. It should be the Holy Spirit. And I, I get that, and I, I just I have no problem with either one. Uh, in some churches I go to, they use Apostles' Creed, and they substitute spirit for ghost. I don't cringe at that. But I, I kind of like saying Holy Ghost, especially with Halloween coming up. Um, but, you know, we as Presbyterian-type Christians, we, we have a lot to say about God the Father. We have a lot to say about Jesus as the Son of God, our Savior. But Holy, uh, Presbyterians have always kind of never known exactly what to do with the Holy Spirit. We're, we're kind of reticent to even talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Dale Bruner, some of you may remember when we had him come here 40 years ago, great Presbyterian theologian, biblical scholar. He wrote a book called The Holy Spirit, The Shy Member of the Trinity. Because, you know, the, the God the Father is very prominent in Scripture. The Son is very prominent. But the Holy Spirit kind of behind-the-scenes uh, type of person of the Godhead. But he's a part of the Godhead. I, I'm put this drawing up here again, which is a classic uh, diagram that can help us understand the Holy Trinity. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the middle, that's the Greek uh, letter theta, which stands for theos, God. And so the, and the line going down from the Father to theta I put the word is. The Father is God. And the line from the Holy Spirit to the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. But then the lines on the outside, the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So that's part of the mystery of the Trinity that I don't completely understand. None of us will till we get there in eternity, I guess then we'll be known, we'll know as we are known, but now it's, we look through a glass darkly. But we should never confuse the three beings of the Trinity, um, but neither should we ever negate one of them as like, the Holy Spirit's not really God. It's just, I think it's very important to say, and I just want to say it blatantly, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. I've heard a lot of Christians say that's what he is. That it's the force of God, like you know, Star Wars, the force be with you. No, the Holy Spirit is a personal being. Well, how is he different from the Son as a personal being? I don't exactly know. Except the Son's flesh now, and the Holy Spirit isn't. He's spirit. Well, God the Father is spirit. So how is the Holy Spirit different from God the Father? I don't know, but he is. Theologians talk about an economy of the Trinity that there's certain the best way to understand how they're different is what they do the father predominantly is the creator although bible says that jesus participated in the creation and guess who else participated in the creation where do we first meet the holy spirit in scripture anybody know the second verse of the bible genesis 1 2 and the spirit was brooding over the water what does that mean he's brooding I don't know, but it's a part of the creation narrative. So he's participating, 
by brooding uh, in the creation. So you can't just say the father's the sole creator. No, the other two take part of that. And Jesus is the only redeemer. He's the only one that went to the cross and died, took our sins upon himself. But you can't say that the father wasn't somehow connected deeply in the agony of the cross, and nor the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's this economy. But what does the Holy Spirit predominantly do? Well, above everything else, you can make the case that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's main function is to point human beings to Jesus Christ. He never points to himself. That's one of the problems that those of us in the Reformed branch of Christendom have with um, the more charismatic Pentecostal parts of Christendom who emphasize the Holy Spirit almost above Jesus and the Father. And it's all about you know, being slain in the Spirit and having the gifts of the Spirit and whether you speak in tongues and all that kind of stuff. And I believe tongues is a valid gift. I believe the Spirit gives a lot of different gifts. But beware when you take a minor gift and put it into the middle and elevate it. And Paul says tongues is the least of all gifts. He says, I wish you all spoke in tongues like me. That's Paul talking. So obviously he's saying there are Christians out there that don't. And that's okay. You just don't have that gift. So um, I have some charismatic friends. I call them charismaniacs. Um, it's all about the Holy Spirit. And they never talk about Jesus. And I always say to them, you know, you ought to be, if you really have the Spirit indwelling you, that ought to be pointing you in your speech and everything else to talking about Christ and rather than dwelling on that. I had a, um, my first hospital visit ever was in 1977 in Memorial Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina. And a lady there had gallbladder surgery. And I come in and there's a couple sitting at the foot of her bed. And they introduced themselves and they said they were members of St. Giles Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. Well, I knew that St. Giles was a charismatic PCUS congregation. And uh, I, I did everything wrong in that visit. Um, I visited Delaney Lewis was the name of the lady. I can still remember. And I said, well, Delaney, I'll be praying for you. I'm sorry you had to have the surgery. The husband spoke up and said she didn't have to have the surgery. I thought, oh, are you a doctor? He said, no, but if she was in tune with Jesus enough and had prayed enough and confessed, she must have had some unconfessed sin in her life that caused this. And so here's what I did wrong. I debated that man for two hours in front of her <laughs> in there. And you don't ever do that. Uh, and I'll never forget, I said, if if what you say is true, then if you were driving home from this hospital today and a drunk driver ran through a red light and you're in touch with Jesus enough, you would not be injured. He said, no, not if I saw it in time, I could rebuke it in the name of Jesus. And the car would go away. I said, That's a charismaniac. That is not charismatic. <laughs> anyway, uh, everything was about the Holy Spirit and Beware. Um, the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. 
Um, let's talk about some more of what the Holy Spirit does. The creed doesn't say this explicitly um, until we get into the Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints. But from other parts of Scripture, here are some of the functions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who breathes into you and me the breath of life. He's the animating spirit. You know, there's in matter, there's inanimate creation and there's animate flora and fauna. What is the difference? What makes the difference between a rock and a grasshopper? You can do the physical and chemical studies of it and it won't tell you. We have no idea what animates flowers, rabbits, You've seen these butterflies migrating from Mexico? How in the heck do they know where they are going? As a former scientist, I guarantee you, I could take those butterflies into a lab, break it down, and everything we do is based on the folding of proteins in our genetic makeup. There is nothing, I guarantee you, nothing you would find in from a scientific uh, analysis that would give you any clue why a butterfly can figure out how to get from Mexico to wherever they're going. I would say that's the Holy Spirit at work in them. Um, he is the animating spirit behind all of life, but primarily breathes into you and me the breath of life. Um, also, he stirs up a spirit of conviction and repentance in our hearts. Let me ask you a very important question. You've got to get this right. Most Christians don't. What comes first in the Christian life? Justification, when you are saved, or faith? Does faith precede that? What comes first? Faith? You believe, therefore God justifies you, or is it the other way around? Tom? Well, I'm standing in the Genesis reading about Abraham. Abraham was determined to be righteous before he was circumcised mm -hmm. and after. Mm -hmm. And um, so his faith. And so he believed, therefore God made him righteous. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. No, no. The only reason you and I have faith is because of a prior action where the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, justifies us in the sight of God, and the gift then on the other side of that is the gift of faith. You are not saved by your faith. We tend to, what about sola fide, saved by faith alone? No, no, that's referring to the faith of Christ. It's Christ's faith, which is, you and I can only be saved by a perfect faith. Who, raise your hand if you have a perfect faith. I don't know, I don't have it. You must be saved by a perfect faith. Christ is the only one who has that perfect, complete, whole, righteous, which means in right relationship, fully righteous relationship with the Father. And his faith is imputed to you and me after God has chosen us before the foundation of the world and the Holy Spirit has come in and regenerated our hearts. And the result is we walk on the other side of that with the gift 
of faith. And some people are given more of the gift than others. I don't know why, but there it's not because they deserve it more, uh, because it's unconditional election. I, I, I don't know. It's part of the mystery of what we're up against. But it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts. And this is amazing, and I forget it most of the time, and I wish I didn't. The Holy Spirit actually exists to take up residence in you and me once we become believers. So we're called by Scripture to live our lives out of the indwelling Holy Spirit rather than our own fleshly fallen abilities. And 90% of the time, I'm trying to do it by, here's what I can do. If I, if I get in a jam, I'll call on you, God, rather than begin with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, part of that indwelling is he is continually leading you and me in a process of what's called theological fancy language, sanctification. Justification, or salvation, that's a Christ alone event. We don't do anything to achieve our justification. It's the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart. And um, the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. That's the only thing we bring. Sanctification, whole different story. We're called to participate and partner with the Holy Spirit in hopefully living lives that if you graft them, they would go like this, you know, down. But over a period of five or ten years, if you're ultimately not going up, uh, probably something's wrong. There are going to be dips. You fall off the sin wagon, different places. and But that sanctification uh, thing, and that's the hardest part of the Christian life is saying, Holy Spirit, please help me with this area of my life. Help me clean up this area. Because if you're like me, I have sins that have been my friends for years. And yeah, I want to get rid of them, Lord. Sure. Uh, I really don't. And we should be praying daily, Holy Spirit, help me to live in accordance to where you would have me go and what you would have me be as Christ's man, Christ's woman, rather than what I'd like to be. Um, now, every Christian, I've kind of taken a shot at the charismaniacs, but every Christian is a charismatic. Charismatic just means gifted. And it's the Holy Spirit who gifts you and me with different gifts, and they're all to bear fruit in ministry in some way. That's why it's, it's wrong to... Settle in on your gift and go around, well, I've got the gift of this. And then my question is, what are you doing with it? And a lot of people have gifts, and they're proud of that, and they flaunt them, but they're not doing anything with them. So the Holy Spirit gives us these gifts that empower us beyond our human ability to do certain things that God calls us to do. And, and believe me, if God calls you to do something, you think, well, I can't do that. If he's genuinely calling you, he will give you whatever gifts you need to do it. You may not have that gift right then, but say, Lord, if you're calling me to X, then give me the gift that will enable me to do X. In my experiences, he will do it. And you don't just get all the gifts at one time. Sometimes you'll get gifts later on in life to do something. Sometimes gifts seem to diminish and disappear. God's no longer interested in you doing that over there. So he gives you gifts to go over here. So it's a, it's a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit where he's continually molding and shaping us toward, toward being better uh, missionaries, really, of the gospel. 
Here's some things, uh, other little things the Holy Spirit is here for. To help you and me, not help, to enable us to read Scripture. I always say to people, don't ever pick up the Bible and read it without first praying, Holy Spirit, open my eyes, my heart, my mind to what's here. You know how sometimes you'll read the Bible, you've read the, this a hundred times, suddenly something jumps out. I never saw that. That was the Holy Spirit bringing to illumination something you hadn't seen before. John Calvin used to call the Holy Spirit the spectacles. I've got presbyopia, elder eye, literally. I've had it since I was 45. And I had to get reading glasses. I'm up to 2.5s now, from 1s to 2s, 2.5s. No, I'm up to 3s now. I'm sorry, these are 3s. And, you know, right now, if I'm looking at this page, it's just fuzz. And if you said, Ron, read this, I'd have to go... Okay, but I put on these spectacles, it's clear. That's the Holy Spirit. Calvin says he's like the spectacles. Don't try to read the Bible without asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate. The same with prayer. We're fooling ourselves if we think we can pray for other people on our own. Romans tells us that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us and with us with sighs too deep for words. Have you ever been in a situation where, I mean, it's, it's so agonizing and complicated and complex and that you just don't know how or what to pray? That's when you need to say, Holy Spirit, take whatever's in my heart and lift it to the Father. And he will. He will. With sighs too deep, groans too deep for words. Um, call. Everybody has a call. Every Christian has a call. Have you figured out what yours is? That doesn't mean you're to go to seminary or be a missionary or work full-time in the church. Every Christian has a call. The Holy Spirit is the one who issues the call. The unfortunate thing is it's usually not a trumpet blast. It's usually a still, small voice. And so if you crowded your life with the cacophony of the world's siren and seductive voices, the Holy Spirit's voice can get drowned out. Take time every day to just clear out and say, Holy Spirit, fine-tune my ears of faith to your still small voice, that I might hear your call for what I'm to do today. Or if you haven't figured out what your calling is, mega, meta, ask the Holy Spirit to give you that call. Um, people used to ask me what my goal was for my congregations. I used to say, I want every person, if you said, who are you? You'd say, I am so-and-so, and I'm a fill-in-the-blank in order to be a minister of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing less, nothing less spiritual about being a lawyer than being a pastor. Not if you really understand scriptures. There's no dichotomy between sacred and secular. And in fact, lay people can make a bigger impact on the world. You can get into places I can't. If a rev shows up, you know, it's <laughs> but they'll let you in. And, and then when they hear you talking like a Christian, I, they know I'm paid to do that, you know. I'm a pro professional Christian. 
So their guard is up. But you all, they know, well, they're, they're good for nothing. Uh, they're doing this. They're amateurs. And so they're more likely to listen to you. So you have a much better opportunity to get to people's hearts than, um, than I did. The Holy Spirit's also the generator of miracles. Anybody ever seen a miracle? See some heads nodding. Um, occasionally, I'll I'll run across somebody who says, "I've got I've got the gift of healing," and I've actually seen that happen. But they'll say, "But it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit working through." Me. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit do that with all of us? I don't tell this story often, but I thought I'd tell it today because I once heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, and it was a miracle. Uh, summer of 1971, I was a roughneck for Texaco, an offshore rig off the coast of Louisiana. And I worked the night shift from 4 in the afternoon until 5 o'clock in the morning. And um, my first hitch, out on the, we were, I was on the biggest rig that Texaco had out there, about a... a 150 foot high Derek, and I was a roughneck. There are three roughnecks, a Derek man, the engine man, and the driller. There's six guys on the rig. With a boat docked next to the rig, they'd hire a Louisiana boat captain in case the rig blew up and evacuate us off. But there were six guys on the rig working. So one night we'd come out of the hole. We were eight miles down, I remember that, and to change the bit. And... Um, so one of the other roughnecks, they were two uh, full-time guys. I was a college kid, hired just for the summer. They said, put the cover over the hole. And so I went over there, and I was leaning down, putting the cover over the hole. And all of a sudden, I heard as clear as a bell somebody scream, look out! And usually, you know, you just kind of stop and go, well, but something told me, run as fast as you can. And I did. What happened is the Kelly, if you know what that is, it looks like a big block and tackle. And it weighs about a million pounds. It had 900 and something tons on it. Um, the clutch had broken that was holding that thing at the top of the derrick. And it was plummeting down right on top of me. And I remember diving at the last minute and catching onto the rail of the uh, rig. And this thing hit with a force like you wouldn't believe and, and you know, almost bounced me off of the rig, but I held on tight. Lay, and that thing was laying on its side. Well, it took up the whole floor of the rig. The thing is gigantic. Well, the other uh, five guys come running out. They, they see what had happened. They thought I was underneath there. They thought I was dead. I could hear them on the other side and they're going, and the driller went over and hit the, the engine to pull that thing up. And I'll never forget the looks on their faces. I was over there hanging on this rail. They said, he's alive. He's alive. And I came walking over there. I was stunned. I didn't really, I was in shock probably. And I said, I want to thank which one of you yelled, look out. The other five guys said, we were all in the engine room getting coffee. We didn't even see it happen. It wasn't my day. <laughs> that was a miracle. I audibly heard that. 
Now, I can't prove that was the Holy Spirit, but I'm kind of like Lazarus. I'm here, and I shouldn't be, other than so the Holy he yelled that time. But you know, if you'd been standing there, would you have heard it? I don't know. You know, the, Paul's Damascus Road thing, God speaks to him. And it says to the Roman soldiers, it sounded like thunder. Or, you know, they, they didn't audibly understand. So I don't know. Could you have heard it? Was it just inside my head that the Holy Spirit screamed? I'll find out in eternity. <laughs> I guess. Well, uh, one last thing about what the Holy Spirit does. He's our comforter, the Bible tells us. The Greek word is paraclete, not parakeet. Paraclete, which means literally to come alongside of. Think about this. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and Jesus promised, I will never leave you. That's a Holy Spirit promise. Did somebody just cut off my... Testing. No, there is. Okay. The Holy Spirit indwells you, but that also means he's with you always. You never go alone anywhere. And when God calls you and me to do some impossible things, uh, you never go alone. I have this hunch that you and I can go just about anywhere and do anything if we have the right companions. I think, this is just my take on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think that's the underlying meaning of the whole four volumes of that thing. Uh, that if you have the right companions, you can make just about any... I mean, look at these hobbits. They're completely defenseless. They're like guinea pigs, you know. They, and they go up against all kinds of supernatural wizardry and all this stuff. They shouldn't... But they had the right companions. And I think Tolkien, who was a Christian, and the Christian gospel messages woven through those books i think he's trying to get that across to us that if we have the right companions we can make any journey and we have the right companions with a capital c the lord jesus christ and his spirit indwelling us so we never go anywhere alone you're never alone loneliness is the biggest killer in america right now they're saying some of you may be lonely for different reasons but Every time you feel that loneliness thing, remind yourself, I'm not alone. The Holy Spirit's here. And I realize that isn't the, the cure-all, but it is something that you can hold on to and, and make the next step of the journey. Well, let's talk about uh, the Holy Catholic Church and then the community of saints, because this does tie right in to the Holy Spirit. Now, I, don't, I never talked to any of the authors of the Creed, so I don't know if they were putting this together with the Holy Spirit uh, because they agree with what I'm going to say, but I think they probably would. Um, the great English poet Robert Southey, who was not a believer, this is back in the 18th century, he said, I could believe in your Savior, Jesus, if he didn't drag behind him his leprous bride, the church. You know, not a whole lot of people, or a whole lot of people don't like the church. And as someone who's worked for 45 years behind the scenes, I can understand that. I'll talk about that just in a minute. But let me ask a very important theological question. And it sounds very harsh, 
but I think the answer is true. The answer sounds harsh to you. Is there salvation outside of the church? Is there? All the early church fathers and all the Reformation theologians said no. That sounds harsh. Because you have a good friend, and they tell you they believe in Jesus, but they don't go to church. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Are they not saved? I don't want to pronounce judgment. That's God's job. But Scripture makes clear that if you're a believer, you are to be part of a fellowship of other believers. Why? Because God's big into organization? Nobody's big into organism. Southie got his theology right at one point. He called the church what? The bride of Christ. The church isn't just an organization. Scripture makes clear it's the bride of Christ. A bride that Christ died for. How important is the church to Christ? Well, he died for. That he's going to come one day and return to take as his own. And the church is made up, the bride is made up of all genuine believers in, in Christ. Now, I'm going to say, after saying that, I'm going to say there are exceptions. What church was the thief on the cross a member of? <laughs> well, you know, he never took a new member class. And he never said the five constitutional questions. And a session didn't vote him in. And yet at the same time, I'd say the thief was a member. He turned to the groom, so to speak, right there and betrothed himself. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, uh, you know, the person that says, I'm sick of the church, I understand that. The church hurt me, I understand that. Um, our job is to help those folks. You know, my friend Jim Dennison up in Dallas says, treat every person you meet gently because everyone is fighting some kind of battle. And too often Christians are glib and we're not welcoming to, to visitors. If you see somebody you don't know, take the risk of embarrassing yourself by saying, who are you? Well, I'm an 18th generation member of the church. Um, that's better than just ignoring somebody and the person leaves and go, well, there's nothing to this church stuff. Nobody was even interested in me. So um, the church is the bride of Christ. Now the creed puts it the holy Catholic church. What does that mean? Um, holy has nothing to do with anybody in this room, myself included, qualifying for a vacancy in a stained glass window down in the sanctuary. Nothing to do with how good you and I are. Nothing to do with how good the church is. The literal meaning of the word holy in the Bible is simply set apart. Set apart. The bride of Christ, Christ has chosen her, set her apart. And she's leprous. Um, and that's the way it is. And, and I try to help people that are having problems with the church. Try to understand the church is a hospital for sinners, not a rest home for saints. A hospital for sinners. Now, I was on the board of Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas for 14 years. I know that place inside out. I've been in every inch of that, those massive buildings. Let's say you didn't know what a hospital was. You've never heard of one. You never visited one. 
He didn't know anything about it. And I told you, hospitals are great. You want hospitals. And you need hospitals. Okay, convince me. So I take you on a tour of Presbyterian Hospital Dallas. I start you off in the morgue. There's a morgue downstairs for those that don't make it. And I take you around and you see the bodies, the cadavers. Um, then I take you to the operating room where a surgery has just taken place. And there's blood on the floor, bloody instruments around. And, and, and then I take you to ICU where people are on life support and all kinds of horrible illnesses. And I stop there and go, what do you think? You'd be going, get me out of here. This, is, this place is horrific. This is a, a horror show. I said, no, 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 this is necessary. You need this. This is important. And everybody in the hospital is sick, including the doctors and nurses. <laughs> uh, I remember we, being on the board, our biggest thing was we didn't want to get sued. And we we're always uh, the emergency room and, and obstetrics were the biggest things. But then we had this outbreak of infection in the, in the hospital one time, and whoa. So we brought in a forensic team that went over everything in the hospital. You know where they found out the infections were coming from? The keyboards of the computers out in the halls, where a nurse comes, you're in, you're in there with X disease. The nurse puts on her gloves and hazmat suit comes in, does what she does with But then she goes out and she types with the same gloves on. Then a doctor comes along and he's gonna go in and visit another patient and he types in his pre-stuff there. And they found underneath the keyboards, bacterial colonies growing. <laughs> and we got rid of that, infections disappeared. So even the doctors and nurses were infected and spreading the disease. And uh, I went off that board like three weeks before the Ebola thing hit in Dallas. And Doug Hawthorne, who, um, Linda Ruman, if you know her, that's her brother. He was an elder at Highland Park. He retired as the hospital administrator the same time I went off the board. We were like, high five. And so we got out of there just in time because the whole nation was focused on Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas and the Ebola thing. And there was all kinds of lawsuits. And, I wasn't going to say this, but I will. We had a, a, a malpractice suit against us because uh, there was a hospital in Tampa where they went in and they amputated the wrong leg on a guy. All the lawsuits. So we met as a board and said, what are we going to do? And we had a team come back with a plan. The plan was before any surgery, uh, first the surgeon goes into the patient and goes, okay, I'm taking off your, you show me which leg you're gonna, you want off. And he points to the left leg. So surgeon with a permanent Sharpie would mark that leg. Then in the operating room, when the surgeon was ready to operate, he said, okay, I'm ready to operate. The head nurse steps forward and goes, no, stop. And she had a three minute egg timer. And during that time, they were gonna walk through all the steps of what they're gonna do. So we put that in place. And the OR was backed up one day and some doctor comes in there and he goes, I'm ready to operate. And the nurse goes, nope, we're going to wait. And he goes, look, it, everything's backed up. I've got people waiting. And he started operating. And he did it successfully. But the nurse turned him in. 
you violated hospital policy. And so they have a, a, a board of peers, doctors and nurses that he went up against. He said, I did it and here's why. He, he didn't say, try to weasel out of it. He said, yeah, I'm guilty, but you know, I felt that was more important than process at that time, blah, blah, blah. So they convicted him and they said, your hospital privileges are suspended for 10 days, 10 days. And we commended the, uh, uh, the peer group that did that, and we thought that was fair. Next thing we know, we're hit with a lawsuit by the doctor, takes us to court, and we, we, the jury awards that doctor $32 million. Our lawyer said, no way, we're gonna lose in court. Usually we don't go to court, we'd settle outside because uh, we don't want the publicity. But that time we thought, we're gonna make an example of this guy. I don't know what was with that jury, because usually juries side against doctors, but they didn't in this case. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the Holy Catholic Church, but anyway, uh, it is a hospital for sinners, believe me. Um, Catholic, a lot of us have trouble with that term. We shouldn't. Before there was ever a Roman Catholic Church, there was just the Catholic. Catholic means universal. There's one church. We're we're Presbyterian Catholics, not Roman Catholics. Um, so don't go like this when you say Catholic. Um, I grew up in a half Catholic, half Presbyterian thing, so it's never been a, a big problem for me. Uh, some Apostles' Creed, you'll see it in hymn books, it'll say the Holy Universal Church. But uh, Catholic's a good term. We need to reclaim, I think, the term Catholic. Only one church made up in all time and all places of all believers. Um, and this Catholic church is the bride of Christ. Um, and, you know, we Presbyterians, we're a denomination, not a sect. A sect believes that it's the only church. A denomination, like, okay, we have a, a U.S. currency, but there's many different denominations of bills. You have 20s and tens and, uh, that breaks down when you think well this 20 is worth more than the 10 but this is to say there's only one unified monetary system but they're different denominations of the bill that's the way Presbyterians look at the church so we we've never said we're it we're just one part of the one holy catholic apostolic church um, but you need to know that the church also, Calvin talked about this a lot, and so did all the other reformers. He talked about the invisible versus the visible church. The visible church is everybody that's on the rolls at any time. Um, the invisible church are the true believers. You know, not everybody that joins a church really understands it, or I've had plenty of people say, well, I, I see... I run into him. Hey, you were a member at First Pres 40 years ago. Yeah, that was a phase. Uh, now I'm into Kabbalah or something. Um, who are the true church? Who's the invisible church? Don't ever try to figure it out. There's only one person that you can know is a part of that church. That's you. So don't look at something. Oh, there must be the, the tares growing amongst the wheat. Don't ever say that. They might be. But God may have other plans for them. So don't try, Jesus says, don't try to pull the tares out. You're going to yank some of the wheat out too. So be careful. 
communion of saints. What does that mean? The communion of saints is made up of the church triumphant and the church militant. The church triumphant are all believers that have gone ahead of us. They're in eternity. They're in the unveiled glorious presence of Christ. The church militant, that's us. We're down here on earth engaged in spiritual warfare. But we're all part of the communion of the saints. I think this ties into the Holy Spirit as well, uh, particularly when it comes to the sacraments of the church. We have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. In baptism, you know, we've talked in here before about how when you're baptized, it's not just some little ritual that's nice and you have a little party afterwards. If what Paul in Scripture says is true, that you and I actually go to the cross with Christ at our baptism, into the tomb with Christ, and are raised with Christ. Well, how can that be? This is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. There's something cosmic going on. When we baptize a little baby, uh, when I met with parents before I do a baptism, I said, you know what we're going to do on Sunday? We're going to drown your kid. Uh, and they go, whoop. I said, that's good theology. In fact, in the Orthodox Church, they submerse babies. The kid comes, kid thinks he's dying. He comes up sputtering. What are you trying to do, kill me? Yeah, you're going to the cross with Christ and into the tomb with Christ, but being raised with Christ. Somehow the Holy Spirit takes us into those things through our sacrament of baptism. And then with the Lord's Supper, have you ever thought, this is the, where the veil is thinnest between time and eternity when you and I celebrate communion. It's not just bad refreshments. Um, that's what I thought when I was a little kid. I said to my dad one time, when can, when can I take refreshments? And he looked at me like, <laughs> if they are refreshments, it's pretty bad. McCullough Room beats communion any day in terms of, you know, quality. But not in terms of what's going on. When you and I take that wafer and drink that wine, there's something going on far deeper and vaster than you and I can understand. We, at that point, join hands with every believer that's ever lived anywhere in time and space and every believer that's on this planet at the same time. At one table with Christ at the Messianic Feast. How does that work? I don't know. The Holy Spirit makes that happen. Remember one time back in 1984, we had a Scottish pastor here named George Dougherty, and I met with him in my office afterwards, and he was a widower at that time, and he said, Ron, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I pray to my wife. I thought, and he, he could see that I was upset about it. And he said, tell me biblically why I shouldn't do that. All I could think of, that's Romish. And I'm, I'll never forget, he said, would you say that my wife is in the unveiled glorious presence of Jesus? Yes, sir. Do you think that she sees things? Is she one of the cloud of witnesses that can see what's going on down here? I believe so. Do you think she's seeing it from a perspective that she never had when she's on the earth? Yeah, I do. Then when I say, I forget his wife's name, Betty. When I say, Betty, pray for me. Do you have any problem with me asking you to pray for me? I said, no. Then why should I have a problem asking my wife 
who's in a much better position to pray for me than you. And you know, he, he talked about when you're a Christian, okay, this is Jesus. And this is you. And this is somebody you love who's died and uh, who's with Jesus in heaven. So this person in heaven, um, their hands are, are joined. Uh, they're with Christ. And we here on earth, if we have a genuine personal relationship with Christ, we're, our hand is in Christ's hand. But look, look what happens. That means somebody that died as a believer, a loved one, you're not separated from them. They've got Christ's right hand, you've got their left hand in a cosmic way. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that reality a reality on beyond our finite human understanding. So that ought to be a great encouragement and hope uh, to us. Um, let me stop here and just maybe take five minutes for questions. Um, yeah, all right. So, regarding uh, the Holy Spirit, there's a concept called the prayer language. And specifically, uh, there's two verses I'll decide on the Romans 8.26 Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to be the words. Then the second verse is 1 Corinthians 14 uh, 1 so, Pursue love and earthly desires of uh, the spiritual gifts especially for human for especially that you may prophesy the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but God. The one, the one understands. They utter mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people. So it's not about prophesying people versus uh, I equivalent it to like a tuning fork. You know, and you're in G with God. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, you know, I've wrestled with <laughs> I've, I've wrestled with it. I don't think I'm talking behind his back to say, I think he'd say, sure, Ron, go ahead and share. Some of you know Jim Singleton, uh, who was a associate pastor here at the same time I was. We overlapped by five years. And Jim uh, told me he, he prays in tongues. I said, oh, tell me about that. One time I had a bunch of Roman Catholic nuns lay hands on me to pray in tongues. It didn't happen, so I figured I wasn't supposed to get it. So um, I said, well, Jim, how did you get this? He said, well, it just came out of nowhere. And I said, so you speak in another language? He says, no, it's a prayer language. And his wife, Sarah, did too. Explain to me. I can't. I just go into this thing, and then the Holy Spirit just produces this. I think there's probably, I don't there's nothing to that. I trust Jim. Um, there's a whole lot more to the Christian life than we can figure out. And I think those verses say that, that, that the Holy Spirit's... Um, I think the bottom line is, does this build up the church or not? And if it doesn't, probably be wary. But I remember my dad came home one night from a Sunday evening service. 
I went to a church in Washington, D.C. called 4C Memorial Church, which is a Bible church. Now, they, they don't go near charismatics. <laughs> Came home and he said, the most interesting hap thing happened at this service. A man got up, uh, uh, an Anglo man, and began to just speak utterances. Blah, 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 blah. And the pastor was pretty savvy. After the guy finished, he said, is there anybody here that can interpret what that man said? A Japanese man stood up and said, well, he spoke fluent Japanese, and he, uh, he quoted a verse from Isaiah or something. And the pastor turned to the man who spoke in tongues and said, do you know Japanese? He said, no. So I'd say, and then they read the verse in English, and you know, it was edifying to the, and I mean, my dad left the one. This is real, you know. So it built up the church. So I don't want to, I don't want to, um, there, there are people that worship different than me and, and their prayer life is different than mine. And I don't want to say that's invalid if it's building them up in Christ and building up the body of Christ. Well, you need to be wary. The Bible says, test the spirits. There are other spirits out there and who can do miracles. I remember a woman coming to me in Dallas and said, some guy has set up a tent in downtown Dallas. He's having these healing services and people are being healed. She went down and saw it. So we need to throw Highland Park's full support behind this thing. And I said, wait a minute, we need to check it out. I said, look at the, look at the, the Exodus story with Moses and the Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians produce, reproduce every miracle Moses does, except one. They can't do the gnats. I don't know. Next time you're, saying bad nat remember they were kind of the guys that satan couldn't touch maybe they're special but yeah there are other spirits out there so you know i have some charismatic friends and i say to them you come to me and you just said god spoke to you that you're supposed to do this or i'm usually it's i'm supposed to do something and i said you know how can i argue with you if if i prayerfully think you're I don't sense God, well, you're going against the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit told So, you know, watch out. It kind of cuts off the argument. Um, we're to reason together, I think, discern together what the Spirit is saying. Maybe one more question. Yes, Sandy? Yeah, praying when at first when you said it was like, yeah, you're asking her to pray to Jesus. Yeah. Oh, you know what I left out? I should have said this. Prayer is simply conversation with God, right? So, um, you know, we're not we're not to pray to saints. Now that, except we are, we can have. I believe we can have conversations with them. So, Roman Catholics would argue, well, that's prayer. Um, but you're not asking that saint to do a mirror. You're asking the saint to pray on your behalf, or that loved one, or whoever it is. Yeah, they are a saint, uh, chosen by God. So I think we ought to open up in that area. And so I ask my daughter Anna to pray for me all the time as I'm up against it. Anna. Pray that Daddy would figure figure out what God wants me to do in this, and I'd never say that from the pulpit, but I say it in here because I, I think it's okay. 
she's better. She's the best theologian in our family. Sorry, Ann. Um, well, we need to quit. So let me close this in prayer. I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. Thank you for condescending and taking up actual residence in our very beings um, such that we're not just not alone, but we're indwelt by part of the triune Godhead. I, I can't even fathom that, Lord. I, I tend to operate like I forget about it every day. Uh, so help us to be more sensitive, fine-tune all of our ears of faith to your still small voice that we might clearly hear you above the raucousness of the current culture around us and give us the courage to faithfully follow Jesus wherever um, he calls us to go. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.